So our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians 5. So we read 1 Corinthians 5 and we read the whole chapter. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out, out, out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you're assembled, and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so that it may be a new unleavened batch, as you already, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb. <coughs> excuse me. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore. Let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you, wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister that is sexually immoral or greedy or idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler, not, no, not even, uh, <coughs> not eat, eat with such people. What business is it of, is it of mine? To judge those outside the church? Are you, not to, are you not to judge those outside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. Try again, yeah. I must have turned it off and I thought of turning it on. Uh, it's a pleasure for me to be here, and uh, especially since my wife and I are leaving for a few weeks uh, to visit our children in Cambodia and in Geelong. Um, could I ask you to pray that we will have opportunity to reach out again in Cambodia the way we were able to last time? And uh, yeah, appreciate that. But we are here this morning to look at um, the message of 1 Corinthians 5. And I want to begin by showing you this slide. 
do we have a problem here? Well, it's not that this church is willing to reach out to the LBG plus society. That, of course, is something we must all do. Um, we would welcome them if they came here to listen to the gospel because that's what we are about. But the problem is that this church here clearly encourages the LBG plus to continue in their sinful lifestyles. Moreover, they pride themselves on the tolerance. And we see that that's exactly something that Paul is addressing here in our text because he says we should not take pride in tolerance of sinful behavior in church. Uh, in the case of the Corinthian church, it invo involved another form of porneo. I'm using the Greek term here. Uh, porneia, from which we get the word porn and pornography, uh, is a word that was used for all sexual sin, whether homosexuality or gender change or adultery or uh, yeah, uh, incest, whatever. All was included under that one term. But in the case of Corinth, the particular form that this took was of a man living with his um, stepmother. Now, it's interesting that Paul doesn't use the word stepmother here, although the Greek has a word for it. Instead, he uses the expression with his father's wife. And I think the reason for this is because the Corinthians, who were familiar with the Old Testament as it was written in the Greek language, the Septuagint that they had, would uh, be alerted to the fact, yes, there is something in Scripture that speaks about that. Uh, because in these texts we see here in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it's expressly stated, do not have sexual relations with your father's wife that would dishonor your father. And the same is repeated in different forms always using this expression, the father's wife. And I think Paul here is reminding them of this fact by using that expression. But Paul actually appeals here to uh, the fact that even unbelievers know that this is wrong. You don't need the Old Testament to tell you. Everybody knows it's wrong to sleep with your father's wife. And here he actually appeals, um, well, he could have appealed to a, a Greek author who lived a little before him, a man named Cicero, who writes, uh, he heard about a case of a man sleeping with his father's wife, and he writes, oh, incredible wickedness. And except in this woman's case, unheard of in all experience. It just wasn't done. And here we find that the church in question prides itself on the matter. In fact, the word that's used is they were puffed up. Ha, we're a good church. We can tolerate this kind of thing. Uh, we'll set the tone for society and so on. Now, I don't know what motivated it in this. Maybe they had misunderstood Paul's uh, teaching about the liberty that we have in Christ. 
But of course, when Paul talks of our liberty, he's not talking about liberty from God's moral law. No, he's speaking there of liberty from the uh, ceremonial laws that Jews had to uh, follow, food laws and all that. And of course, their national laws as a nation of Israel and later Judea. These rules uh, were not... um, Binding on us. In fact, the church had just had a synod on the very matter. You may remember in Acts 15, we read that uh, there were some Jews who said, Now that these Gentiles are coming into the uh, church, we want them to live just like us Jewish people, observing our customs and getting circumcised. And the Gentiles understandably said, We'd rather not, thank you. And so, um, to settle the matter, they had a synod about it in Jerusalem. And we read it about, uh, about it in uh, Acts 15. And then uh, it was stated at that synod that, uh, yes, uh, Gentiles will not be required to follow these Jewish laws. In fact, what it said was, uh, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements— that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And there's that same word porneia again. Uh, And uh, why sexual immorality? Because if you had asked the Jews, how are Gentiles immoral? The first thing that would have come into their minds was their sexual immorality. And uh, in other things, they weren't too different from the Jews, but in this matter, they stood out. Now, you may say to me, Bill, but doesn't it include some Jewish customs as well? What about this uh, meat that has been sacrificed to idols or uh, the blood or things strangled? Well, if you read the chapter, uh, it becomes clear that the reason for that was that they wouldn't give offense to the Jewish people who were found in every church uh, in the known world at that time. And so uh, Jewish people who did follow these examples, these laws, uh, would not like to share in a barbecue where you put your pork chop next to their kosher food. So that was the reason for that. But clearly... Uh, the uh, Gentiles were accept, uh, expected to follow God's moral laws with the example given here of pornea, which marked the Gentiles. Uh, pornea in whatever form was not acceptable among God's people. Now, such pornea is listed with other sins, um, that some of the members used to do before their conversion. And we read about that a little bit further in, uh, in the next chapter, in fact, where we read, uh, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, and again that word pornoi comes up, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The church must continue to remind its members that these kind of sins were part of our former lives but are not acceptable in the church. We are called to holiness. We are identified as saints. And it's up to the church, therefore, to make it clear to the world that God expects all men to repent and turn away from their sins. And it's up to the church to call people who live in these lifestyles to turn to Christ and find the forgiveness that we enjoy. Now, the church in Corinth failed in this because instead of giving an example of godly life, they followed in the ways of the world and they glorified in that. What should the church have done? Well, they should have warned and disciplined the man in question. Paul had already judged the man in his own mind, in spirit. And he wants the church, when it next meets, to follow his example and together with him in spiritual presence to um, remove that man from the church. Now, such judgment of removing people, identifying sin in the church and, he, and dealing with people who, who live in sin is part of the task of the church. We clearly read that in verse 12. We are to judge one another for the sake of purity. And here we're not just talking about sexual purity, but about all of God's moral requirements. We can think of the what we call the Ten Commandments, but the Jews called the Ten Words or the Ten Principles. And these were the commandments about uh, worship, how we must worship God alone and uh, not use idols and not misuse his name, about uh, the need to observe a day or a time of rest, about the uh, need to be obedient to parents and, and authorities, about our duty to protect life, whether it's unborn or whether it's the elderly who are threatened with euthanasia or whoever, or uh, to protect the family and the sexual sexuality that belongs to the parents, um, to um, protect possessions and recognize how God gives differently to different people, to protect truth, especially truth in the pulpits, so that no heresy may be preached, and to protect people from evil desires, the covetousness. Now, <clears throat> uh, the need for purity among God's people has always been central to the people of God. And it's one of the things that the Old Testament people were reminded of in the Passover's feast. Um, if you have a look at this text here in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, our text where it says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, 
but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see, at the time of the uh, original Passover in Egypt, the um, Jews were to sacrifice, uh, or Israelites, I should say, would sacrifice a lamb, and the blood of the lamb would be put on the doorpost. And this would give them protection from the wrath of God. In the same way, we are protected by the blood of Christ, our Passover lamb. He protects us from the wrath of God what in theology we call propitiation. Uh, we have been justified in God's sight. But having been justified, they must now continue to live without sin, without the leaven of impurity, the leaven of sinfulness, um, or what is called here the yeast of malice and wickedness. Uh, clearly, uh, it's referring here to the community as a whole. Because what is it about leaven that makes it so unique? It is the way that leaven spreads, doesn't it? You take just a little bit of leaven, put it in your dough, and we all know that it goes through the whole dough, and the bread rises, and the whole bread is leavened. And that's the thing about uh, sin, too. It can be just a little bit of sin here, but if you let it go, it'll spread to the whole community. And so for the sake of all, we must deal with it. We must remove it, uh, live without this yeast of, of sinfulness and malice. In 2 Timothy 2.16, Paul likens uh, unrepentant uh, sin um, to uh, gangrene. And what do you do with gangrene? Well, I looked it up. I know the old way was to amputate, and still the only answer today seems to be to amputate. Uh, you, you, the dead flesh has to be taken away and removed, or the whole body will die. Toleration of sin inevitably causes others to follow the bad example. You can find lots of examples of that in, in Israel, that when uh, people started worshiping in high places, uh, in one place, soon it would spread. Uh, we think, too, of the case of Solomon, who said, well, uh, since my wives come from other nations, I will let them uh, worship in their own way and had altars made for them. And we see how it spread out to the rest of uh, Israel's society. Now, <clears throat> it's important, therefore, that we remove sinfulness for the sake of the community and this is why we have excommunication. But there's a second reason too, and that is that excommunication is also for the health of the person who's living in sinfulness, because we're also concerned about that person. Here too, one sin will work like a leaven, in that if you start sinning here, soon you'll be sinning there and there. A good example is that of King David. You remember, he was standing on the uh, roof, uh, palace, uh, palace of the roof, and uh, he looked down and he saw this woman bathing, and lust hits him. And uh, this lust turns into uh, adultery. 
And then uh, when uh, it's clear that uh, she's pregnant, she now has to deceive Uriah and the community into thinking Uriah's the, the real father. But when that doesn't work, he finally resorts to murder. And so you see how one sin leads to the other. And maybe you've d discovered that in your own life. You have to deal with the sin when it arises, or it will lead you astray from God. Now, how should we deal with these kind of situations where a person has to be uh, challenged on the lifestyle they lead? Well, our church order gives us some uh, good guidance on that. Public sins, of course, need to be dealt with in a public way for the sake of the church. It has to be denounced, and the sinner has to be called to repentance. But uh, there are also private sins. And you may remember how Christ teaches us if a brother sins against you, you have to then confront a brother. Or if you see a brother live in sin, or a sister live in sin. You have to confront them. They won't listen to you. You go with a witness, and usually we uh, would take an elder with us, and uh, if they still won't listen, then it's taught, taught to the consistory, to the session of the church, and they deal with it. If the sinner won't lead to the session, then uh, it is announced to the church that one of the members of the church is living in sin and banned from the Lord's table. If the person still will not repent, the uh, session will now take the matter to the presbytery or classes uh, because you don't want personal vendettas to arise in a church or matters like this. So as extra protection, they take the matter to classes and say, here's the situation. Do you agree that we now go to step two and announce to the church who the person is and what the sin is they are involved in? And if classes agrees, that will then be done. And if the person still does not repent, a third announcement will say that the person has now being separated from the church. And in this way, um, <coughs> the church is protected. Um, we do this so that, one, we can now pray for that unrepentant sinner. That is our first purpose in making this matter known. Not that we can say, oh, this bad person, and start gossiping about it. No, so that we can pray that God will lead them to repentance. And not only that, it also serves as a warning to the rest of the church. When you, this happens, um, well, see what the consequences are. So it serves as a warning to others. And, of course, uh, people who are under discipline, as I mentioned, may not partake in the Lord's Supper. And there are two reasons for this. Firstly, that if you take the Lord's Supper when you live in unrepentant sin, we are told later in the book, chapter 11, verse 28 and 29, you then drink and eat judgment unto yourself. And it mentions the possibility of sickness and even death. And so um, I do want to warn you that when we partake in a moment, that you do examine yourself and you live, if you live in uh, unrepentant sin, you are urged not to partake. 
But the second reason is that we are specifically told in verse 11 of our text that we should not even eat with such a person who will not live um, according to God's uh, moral precepts. Now, the excommunicant, therefore, is to be shunned. Uh, this was something that uh, was very effective in the olden days when uh, usually the church community all lived in one village. And uh, if he was a baker, people would now no longer bake bre uh, buy bread from him but would go to another baker. And uh, this often gave people the uh, good reason to repent again. Um, and we see that uh, scripture specifically says in Second Thessalonians 3, and if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he or she may be ashamed, yet do not count him or her as an enemy, but admonish them as brothers or sisters. Now, uh, we realize, of course, that uh, sinners come in either gender. Um, now, what do we do in these kind of situations? Is say it is one of your children who's living in unrepentant sin. Do you say, as some people used to do in the past, the father would go up and say, you're no longer my son, you're no longer welcome in this house, I don't know you anymore. Is that what this is saying? I don't think so. Because it especially says here, admonish him as a brother all the more if they are a real uh, physical relative. So we do want to keep those lines over. But it is important that we ask ourselves, what do we allow this errant child to do in our house? Would we allow him to, to continue in a sinfulness under our roof with brothers and sisters looking on and saying, oh, Seems to be good enough for him or her. Maybe I should try the same. I think this is where we really need to pray and wrestle with God for an answer based on his word. How do we deal with that? On the one hand, we want to show that we, we care for this person. We want them to, to come back to God and also to the family. But on the other hand, we don't want them to affect the rest of the family. Verse 4 in our text says that we are to surrender the unrepented sinner to Satan. Now, at the time of the Reformation, uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, they said this means that you sent them to the torturer, and you may remember the torturer offered worn horns that reminded you of Satan, and uh, he was there to, uh, well, you were surrendered to torture in the hope that you would repent, which uh, might restore you to the church, although usually they killed you anyway, but uh, at least they said you will now go to heaven. Is that what it means to be surrendered to Satan? No, of course not. Rather, it means that when we send them into the world, they no longer have the protection of the praying community. And I wonder if you are aware of how important that is, that we pray for each other, that we encourage one another to live a life of holiness. But once you're excommunicated, this protection is gone. You're now in the world where sin will run its course. 
And uh, here we are. Uh, we can look at the example of the prodigal son. You remember, he got his inheritance and said, I'm going to live it up. And he went to the world and it was fun for a while until his money ran out. And then things caught up with him. And he ends up living a life like a pig in a pig's tie. And he finally realizes, I should go back uh, to where I came from. This reminds us that there are really only two options of living in this world. You can live with God or with Satan. There's no other option. You can be part of the church or part of the world. We see this very clearly demonstrated in the Old Testament where the people of God were protected from, from the world by God himself, and God, for their protection, gave him his laws and ordinances, and as long as they followed in this, they were right. They were protected. Uh, by the way, uh, this didn't mean that uh, people from outside weren't uh, welcome in Israel. No, on the contrary, uh, Israelites were to welcome and help sojourners in their country, but these sojourners were expected to follow the rules of the land. And if they didn't, they were removed. Uh, now, I think the same should count then for the kingdom of God. Yes, we live according to the uh, rule of faith that we have from Christ. And when people join us, we uh, expect them to, to follow in our ways while they are here and not uh, the ways of the world. Now, excommunication places a person back outside the church into the world, back in the situation we read about in Romans chapter 1, where people who won't follow God and won't repent of their sins are given over to their lusts, and they, they go, get deeper and deeper into sin, and then in their persons receive the penalty for their sin. And that can come in all kinds of ways, but uh, uh, things will get hard on them, to where they are encouraged to, um, to come back. Now, we may uh, we get a picture in the media and so on that unbelievers are having a lot of fun. And the more riches and, and, and goods you have, the more fun you have. We know the truth is quite different. You actually find very high rate of suicide among people who so-called have everything. It would seem that in the case of our text, the discipline actually had the desired effect that the sinner repented and turned to God. We read that in 2 Corinthians 7. Um, and uh, <clears throat> it would seem that God's grace uh, came upon him and he returned to the fold. Shunning unrepentant excommunicants does not mean that we remove ourselves from the sinners in the world. Paul says if you were to do that, you'd have to leave the world. Uh, if you live in society, you're going to meet up with them. We are part of society. We must pray for it. We must support it through taxes and uh, through elections and in all kinds of ways. We must interact with it where in good conscience uh, we can, we go along with it. Though 
uh, there are many things in society that disturb us, especially today, aren't there? And uh, therefore, we need to reach out with the gospel and with love where we see these things happening. The passage closes with a reminder that we are not here to judge the world. Um, we could spend all our time discussing what's wrong in the world, and uh, you only need to uh, turn your uh, TV on or go to the Internet, and you will find all kinds of rumors and scandals surrounding politicians and royalty and film stars, sports heroes, uh, your neighbors and relatives, and we could gossip about how evil they are and so on, but that is not why we are here. Um, Conspiracy theories are rife, and uh, if we were to delve into them, the danger is that we get so involved in this that we forget what our task is. We are told we are not to judge the world, but to present to them a picture of the Christian life. That is where our emphasis must be. Leave judging the world to God. But as a church, we strive to uh, show the type of life that God means his creatures to live. You know, the interesting thing is that our society today is not too different from what happened late 18th century, sorry, late 1800s, I should say, in London, uh, where uh, there was a lot of foment for uh, for revolution and so on. Uh, in fact, it was much like Washington today with a counterculture movement, uh, Black Lives Matter type of thing. But in London, uh, the instigators of this were Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. And you probably know the names. They're the ones who... Uh, tried to bring on a communist revolution. They didn't succeed in London, but they did eventually succeed in uh, Moscow, in Russia, and other places. But uh, London was actually rife for this type of revolution at the time. And uh, Marx and Engels were challenged, why isn't it happening? And Engels answered in one word. He said, Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a pastor called by God to preach in London. And what he preached was not politics. What he preached was not um, what was happening in the world. But what he preached was the gospel with the call to forgiveness and a new life in Christ. He encouraged holiness and purity. And people flocked to his churches. And instead of following Marx and Engels, they turned to God. But Spurgeon himself said that the people who did most to foster the revolution were in fact his erring colleagues, pastors who had bought in to the vision of communism, saying, isn't it lovely that we do away with all these families and love everyone, you know what that means, and that we... Uh, yeah, uh, share all things in common. Isn't that what we read the church did in Acts 1 and so on? Uh, and it's these pastors who came also with the teaching at that time 
of uh, evolution, that man was just a glorified ape, these were the persons that Spurgeon said were most encouraging to the revolution of the communists. They are the ones who should have been put under discipline. The church is a haven for forgiven sinners. But the church can only be that haven when it's free from open sinfulness. When it seeks to live the lifestyle to which we are called. Christ gave his life so that people might find protection from sin and its consequences in his body, the church. So at his, as his body, let us live to glorify our Lord and Savior for the wonderful thing he has done in our lives. Let us pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for your word, your word that calls us to a life of holiness, because it's only in holiness that we can find true happiness, that we can find a shalom. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, who paid for our sins with his blood. And Father, we pray that even as his blood covers us like the Passover lamb's blood, that we will not continue with the yeast of unrighteousness and sinfulness. Lord, grant that we may live in the holiness to which we have been called. And Father, we pray if there are any among us who are living in unrepentant sins, Lord, touch their hearts that they may turn to you and continue uh, to live under your grace. Father, we pray that you will keep us from sin and that you will bless us as we now remember what Christ has done through partaking in the supper in which we remember how he gave his flesh and his blood that we might live. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.